0: In 2015, the United Nations launched its 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which were the remix to its Millennium Development Goals. Of the 17, Zero Hunger is number two, and its goal, per the UN website, is to end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition, and promote sustainable agriculture. At the forefront of the fight to end hunger is the World Food Program. The World Food Program is the largest humanitarian organization providing life-saving interventions in emergencies and using food assistance to support stability to those recovering from conflict, disasters, and the impacts of climate change. This episode's guest, Nathaniel Glidden, is one of the many inspiring team members that make up the World Food Program's global mission. Nathaniel and I met in grad school in New York City at the New School, and like most of my international development network, he knows me as Javi. Big thanks in advance to Nathaniel for taking the time to share his work with us here on the pod. I'm Jarrett Carpenter, and this is Wi-Fi Water. Nathaniel, welcome to Wi-Fi Water. How are you doing? Thanks, Javi. Thanks
1: for having me. Uh, I'm doing really well. It's the end of the week, and uh, it's it's time to to relax a bit.
0: Time to kick back. And... It's noontime here, but why don't you tell people, noontime in Boston, I guess I should say, noontime in Massachusetts, but why don't you tell people where you're calling in from and what time, like what's going on there? What's the, what's the? and I'll spoil it a little bit. It's a nighttime activity. What's, what's the rest of your night looking like?
1: I actually just got off a Zwift ride. So like a virtual bike ride before the call, <laughs> but I am sitting in Rome, Italy. And um, yeah, in my, in my little apartment that the, my, my wife and I share. And, you know, we've just got probably a home-cooked Italian meal because uh, everything's closed. We're, we're considered an orange zone, which means restaurants are closed.
0: Orange zone. What's the, is there anything above that? I mean, is it like red, ruby red? What yeah, <laughs> What what, what <laughs> tier in the color coding are we in? We're, we're right in the middle, which is
1: shy of you can't leave your house, which is the red zone. And it's all based on positivity rates. So, If we hit a certain a positive positivity rate of oh goodness see I don't even know the numbers exactly I just know which color I am, Uh, (laughs) but the next step down would be yellow, which would mean that restaurants are able to open up, but we nonetheless all have a curfew. We have to be in by ten, and stay home until five a.m. And the goal is to be a white zone, which means that the positivity rate is so low that commerce can resume as it used to before.
0: And have you over the last you know since COVID started has Rome and your surrounding area, have you gotten to periods of white zones? I think this past summer was, you know, it was a better time for parts of Europe. Clearly you're not there now, but did you have some time where you could go out and go to shops and maybe not do a mobile ride online and go out and get your bike out on the road?
1: Yeah, the entire summer was was fine. Uh, the numbers were super low, but as soon as the cold weather came in, it just brought with it an explosion of cases um, and the reintroduction of a curfew and stores closing down and restaurants being shuttered. And uh, so that's where we find ourselves. There was a, a lull in the summer, but we're, we're back to, you know, pretty much lockdown.
0: And so tell us a little bit about your work. You're stationed in Rome and you're working for the World Food Program. So what's your portfolio? Is it parts of Europe? Is it parts of the Middle East? Is it parts of Africa? Because where you are in Italy is, you know, it could be a jumping off point to many places.
1: It's not the most intuitive place for a, for a headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, WFP is one of the Rome-based agencies along with uh, FAO and IFAD In a nutshell, what it is that I do is I oversee our corporate strategy for the USDA McGovern-Dole program. USDA McGovern-Dole provides funds for integrated school feeding programs, and for WFP, USDA has been the biggest donor to school feeding, which is one of our flagship programs. Uh, so I've had the, the the privilege of overseeing corporate strategy for engagement with USDA, but then on the back end dealing with our country offices and uh, providing them with the strategy as well as supporting program design for uh, annual calls for proposals. If I can add to that, you asked about specific areas and it's primarily the developing world. Uh, When I was in uh, in a similar role in Washington, I oversaw programs in West Africa uh, as well as Haiti, Uh, And now that has expanded to all of the USDA McGovern-Dole-funded programs that WFP sees itself supported in, and that spans the entire African continent, uh, Southeast Asia, four countries there, as well as Haiti. So in total, about 11 countries, and on an annual basis, we seek to apply for three to four new programs.
0: Three to four new programs, meaning new countries, or...? So...
1: The the only way in which um, we would ever apply for funds from USDA it's it's a competitive process but the only uh, reason why we'd apply is because we already have an ongoing school feeding program and when I say we have a school feeding program it's one that we implement together with the host governments and ultimately our goal is to reduce our direct implementation and move into a space where we can provide technical assistance and support the the host government's national program scale up.
0: And when you say school programming, are we talking K through 5, something that would be kind of like the US middle school a 6 through 8 or are we just looking at high school which is like a 9 through 12 or maybe some type of a higher education? My gut tells me that you're focusing on the younger side, the K through 5 when kids are maturing and they really need those nutrients to be able to grow so we avoid things like stunting but am I wrong? Where are you focusing all your intentions?
1: No, you're, you're, you're spot on. It's, um, essentially from preschool all the way to whichever grade the national government has prioritized for school feeding or for a school health and nutrition program. Uh, you may have some countries where the, the national government has prioritized primary and secondary school. So you might be providing school meals, to children all the way up to eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, Uh, whereas other countries uh, have deprioritized, you know, a nationalized school feeding program. And we might just be supporting them in, you know, rolling out a strategy for secondary school feeding, which or secondary school, school feeding, which they might deem more appropriate or necessary.
0: And of all the countries that you're currently working, I think you said 11 countries over Southeast Asia, Western Africa, and Haiti, which country currently is receiving the most amount of resources? Is that something that's done on a per capita basis? Like, hey, this country has more people, or is it more on a needs basis? Like, yes, this country is a smaller country, but their need is exponentially higher due to the populace they have.
1: The unique thing about the position that I'm in is that I only oversee one specific program or one donor, but the way you have to think of it is that USDA provides usually a bulk of the funds to the specific program we're implementing, but then there are private organizations, other you know governments that are providing funds voluntarily wherever their priorities are. So, the school feeding program that I've supported in the past and in, in Haiti, for example, it's also been supported by Canada, by France, by private donors. The country with the most needs. Usually, what we do when we are preparing to establish a program or renew a program is we'll take stock and see, you know, what, based on a vulnerability assessment, what are the needs in country. But then at the same time, we also try to uh, juxtapose that with what is it that we think we would be able to do, and how much support do we think we can count on. So those are kind of the factors that determine how big our programs are and being voluntarily funded there might be huge needs but at the same time that might be countered by us not being able to leverage the resources that are needed to implement a you know a full program
0: thinking about the future of the world and climate change especially and this is something provide nutrients for places that have people that just aren't getting them i think that's a really basic way to kind of break down what i believe the word food program does and please correct me if i'm wrong in that endeavor to provide nutrients where there currently aren't for many different reasons what are the biggest obstacles that you think climate change poses for the work that world food program is doing currently
1: this is a, it's not necessarily my specialty area because it's not what i have to deal with on a daily basis but if you look at the the humanitarian situation for example across the sahel where climate change has so drastically affected the returns that small you know farmers have that that co-ops have that that just even you know subsistence farmers have on their own little plots i think In a context like that, establishing and supporting building resilience uh, is going to be one of the most important things as we face very uncertain times and don't know exactly in which way climate change is going to affect us on an annual basis. You know, we've seen that weather patterns have changed so drastically, I mean, the the increase in tropical storms that are coming through that are just completely destroying areas of, of countries that can't afford to be, you know, to to not have a crop. These are some of you know the things that that really worry me when I think about an emergency context. Um, how do you build resilience when there's one emergency after the next? You know, you could, there's only so many small fires you can put out before you're overstretched. I mean, f- from from a perspective, what we're trying to do in, in the program that I oversee is there are small components as part of you know our school feeding programs where we're trying to do everything we can to be as climate conscious as possible, whether that's you know ensuring that we have fuel efficient stoves, countries that tend to be prone to you know deforest at faster rates than others that they don't have to because they have the technology that is needed to not chop down the trees around a school these are some of the things that we're trying to do and uh, ultimately for the school feeding programs that i oversee they are primarily in kind which means that you know the commodities do come from the us and are sent to the country by by cargo by ship but at the same time what's been introduced recently in this program is the ability to also purchase locally and regionally so as we're weaning off the in kind we're scaling up the local purchase uh, to ensure that, you know, our footprint reduces as we move to go from direct implementation to technical systems.
0: Yeah. When you talk about the local production, I think that's one of the biggest ways that I've seen people talk about climate change is like, well, we don't need to get beans from 4,000 miles away if we have them locally. How do we make that either more accessible or more equitable in its attainability to get that to the people who need it? Thinking about that, what are the crops that subsistence farmers are maybe losing because of climate change disasters, whether that's forest fires or hurricanes or what have you? And what are the crops that you also use in your food programs at the schools? Is there a good mixture there where you're saying, well, there's corn there, we can bring that over, or there's bean there, we can bring that over, or there's rice, or there's something else that we know can really add value into a child's diet? So the
1: food basket ultimately is different from country to country, even though you will see a couple staples that are overlapping depending on you know, re- what regional preferences are. The way in which we start any program is that we look at what the local food basket is and we sit down with our country office colleagues, uh, with national government colleagues and say, how can we make the best use of what's available and what needs to come from the U.S.? and how can we ensure that we have as little effect as possible on the local markets and the amount of commodities that come in in relation to what production might be and what consumption is is minuscule and yeah so ultimately for example the commodities that would come from the us would be rice split peas and vegetable oil just a a very simple meal uh, but it provides Uh, at least three different food groups to children uh, that are receiving up to, you know, between 25 and 33% of the recommended daily uh, um, intake of calories. Um, And that's what they're receiving through the, through the school meal. Otherwise they might not be receiving this.
0: Is that one of the ways that WFP, is that one of the metrics that is measured? Are we just looking at calories essentially saying a child needs X amount of calories So we're hoping at least through our food program, we can provide them one third of the calories or a third of their days needed calories. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well, but is that one of the metrics that's used calories
1: for, for school feeding programs? Yes. That's one of the things that we do look at. And then we of course have to make sure that that's congruent with what it is that the government wants us to do, because we don't tell governments, Hey, we're coming in and we're going to work there. We're only in countries where governments have requested our presence, where governments have said, Hey, we we need your support, we'd be grateful if you could help us with X, Y, Z. And based on that, what we'll do is we'll establish a country strategic plan that aligns with national priorities, but now uniquely in in the world of the sustainable development goals, as you mentioned earlier, (laughs) Uh, our work manage, what we've managed to do now is line up our work together with the national priorities and all of it has a clear line of sight to the sustainable development goals, which is what we're ultimately trying to achieve. You know, we're trying to achieve zero hunger by by 2030.
0: You know, I think the sustainable development goals is almost like the saying that's like shoot for the moon and if you miss, you'll fall among the stars. Meaning there's really no failure as long as you're continuing to put in the day's work day after day with a longer term goal, even if it's lofty. With the work you're doing now, zero hunger by 2030, do you think we'll get there? And if we're not going to get there, what are ways that you think we'll get there maybe in 2040, like moving the goalpost a little to accommodate for all of these natural disasters, accommodate for a global pandemic that they clearly couldn't have foreseen when they created the sustainable development goals in 2015. How are you feeling about, you've got uh you got nine years.
1: <laughs> We've got nine years and yes, it is. Um, it's a daunting task. We know the needs are are big and ultimately we, we think that we can achieve zero hunger by 2030, but at the same time, there needs to continue to be a, you know, a broad call to action. At the same time that host governments, you know, the countries where we are working, while they're stepping up, we also need the, the international community is of huge support in all of these endeavors. And, you know, without the international community, it's not going to be possible. And one of the, the sustainable development goals, number 17, working in partnership, I think that's going to be essential. To ensure that we do everything possible to make sure we can reach zero hunger by by 2030.
0: Of all the sustainable development goals, that is the one that is normally not thought of. All the other 16, I think there's a little bit, you know, it's like clean the oceans, end poverty, zero hunger, invest in green technologies. But 17 is one I think that is the most vague. And I worked with the mayor's office in New York for a couple months. And that was what our focus was, was partnerships. And so who are the partners that the WFP works with most often? Um, You know, you have the funding side, I'm guessing the USDA, and then you have all of the local national governments. But are there other local nonprofits that you also link with in each country? Are there other people at the corporate level that will help you out in just even organizing your team now in the digital age of COVID? Let's go behind the scenes a little bit and talk about the things that we wouldn't think would help the World Food Program.
1: Ultimately, the only reason why we're able to do what it is we do is because of strong partnerships that have been established. And I I know I haven't brought it up yet, but the Nobel Peace Prize this year was a testament not just to WFP's work, but to everyone's work that is a part of this, and I mean, in each country that we work in, we ensure that we're aligned with all the other UN agencies that are working there. We work together with local NGOs. We work together with international NGOs. All of the work that we do is with and through partners. Uh, so, uh, while you know, we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it's a testament to what we've been able to achieve with. Implementing partners and with donor partners. And ultimately, I couldn't even count up exactly how many different entities, governments, and private institutions provide funds or even expertise in terms of like individuals that, you know, what we call an in kind contribution, but professionals that have a a, a specific skill that helps us move further in in the work that we're doing.
0: I think in development or in any organization or in any project, this could even just be a mom and pop, whatever it is, just a store that's running any project that's happening. There's always a understanding that it's easy or it's simple. World Food Program. Okay. There are people that need food. We got to get them food, but there are so many thousands of steps and people that are involved in that, that I wanted to, you know, ask that question because I'm sure it's just not as simple as it sounds like, okay. Yeah. Nathaniel works for the World Food Program. He has his portfolio. He partners with USDA, gets funds from them, and then he puts food where it needs to be in the world. Now the question becomes, what are the obstacles that COVID has kind of put in front of you as a WFP representative, but also maybe made things better? Because I think while COVID has made things worse for certain projects, it's made things better for other projects.
1: That's a really good question question it, it feels like everything between december 2019 and you know january 2021 is blended together into a long year that I, yeah <laughs> I, I couldn't begin to tell you how much has changed but in 2019 a lot of the, the support that i provided was in person in countries leading consultations with government officials, working together with country office colleagues, ensuring that we have sustainable program designs that meet the criteria, So from from my personal perspective, I've been unable to to do any kind of in-person work since I I think I flew back two days earlier from Bangladesh in March of 2020 um, because they were starting to close airspace. And that was the last time I was able to support. So what we've had to do is the way in which we work from our headquarters here, we've had to turn everything virtual, which has been Challenging to an extent, to the extent that just because I need to speak to someone doesn't mean that they need to speak to me. You know, while I'm trying to support them on one specific issue, they're dealing with 10 different issues that have been brought about by the pandemic. And I think what we faced across all of our programs is that all of a sudden the pandemic added so much of a complication to the way in which we implement that. I don't want to say we were overwhelmed, but uh, overworked, weren't able to take breaks when needed, weren't able to take vacations when needed, weren't able to go on R&R. Um, so a lot of the colleagues in, in countries worked for, for weeks at a time without getting any, any uh, reprieve. From a programmatic perspective, I mean, specifically school feeding programs, there were school closures in 199 countries almost virtually every single country in the world had school feeding closures at some point in time. Of the, you know, 300 and I think 369, 370 million children missed out on school meals because of school closures. I think one thing that this pandemic has forced us to do is become, you know, to adapt our programs relatively quickly. And for that, you know, we've been fortunate that uh, our partners have been, have provided an enabling environment where we're able to, for example, change the modality of a school feeding program in that it's no longer provided in school, but we in, you know, in a socially safe manner, provide a take-home ration, um, which no longer just benefits the child, but also the family. So it's been interesting working through the pandemic. I haven't had to see as much of it as colleagues in the field, where I would normally be to, to see it once, you know, once every couple months. But th- the amount of work they've done to pivot and to ensure that we can continue providing life-saving and life-changing support has been nothing shy of amazing. And uh, yeah, from from here, we've tried to do everything we can to ensure that we're as supportive and helpful as possible and that we're not adding on any additional layers of work for people that are already trying to put out fires everywhere.
0: Yeah, and speaking about the people who are out in countries or anyone who's part of the WFP network on the global network that, you know, WFP won the Nobel Prize. How many people are on the ground currently? And maybe you don't you don't know to the exact person, but what's the network look like globally? Th- I mean, thousands of people I assume, but do you have any idea of of the total we, network?
1: So, in total we're more than 19,000 employees. In HQ here, we have about 2,000, I want to say, so we have office, We have country offices in 83 countries. Uh, we have regional bureaus in six countries, and then we have 14 capital offices th- throughout various capitals in the world, such as in DC, in Berlin, in London, where we have you know direct liaison to the host governments, but in total, 19,000 employees. and you know, obviously the majority of them are, are in the field and have been working uh, throughout the entire pandemic.
0: For you in Italy, you mentioned this when we logged on, but you've been doing virtual rides. And I know that in the past, you've been doing non-virtual rides where you'll go out and do like a Centurion and you'll go run a hundred, you know, not run, but excuse me, you'll go ride a hundred miles or so. For you personally, how are you finding a Work life balance, and I ask that because many people who are fortunate enough to work at home, while it's a blessing in some ways, it can also be a curse in others, right? Everything is a blessing or a curse, and the curse being now people know you're in the office 24 hours a day. Now, instead of being able to leave the office at 6 p.m., maybe in a more traditional environment, you might have to work till nine. And especially where you're working with teams all around the world, if it works better for someone's time you know, okay, sorry, Nathaniel, you've got to work till 10 PM local time. So how have you been able to manage the work-life balance, managing global partnerships during a pandemic?
1: For, for the work that I've been doing, it it comes and it ebbs and it flows, um, which has been helpful throughout the pandemic, but it is true that work-life balance is so important. And it has been, it has been a struggle. The fact that, you know, my kitchen now doubles as an office, <laughs> which doubles as a living room, which doubles <laughs> as, a, as a dining room. So it's,
0: um,
1: I think what's been really important for me is to come to, to have a clear routine that I know, even if I do have a bit more work to do later on this evening, I need to step away from the computer. I need to hop on and, you know, do a virtual ride out in like my little uh, outside area where I can just ride my bike to clear my head. I've been one of the fortunate ones in that I get to go into to the office two to three days a week. And I try to do that just for for a change of scenery, but also to to make sure that I, you know, I start my day at a certain time and I finish my day at a certain time and I can have a little bit of time on the way there and on the way back home to just decompress before, if I need to, I can hop on the computer again. Uh, the, the reality, like you said, is that yes, we, you know, I support countries in Southeast Asia. And at the same time, the donor that we're accountable to is in Washington, DC. So, there have been times where, you know, it was pertinent for me to be up until 11 sending emails to Washington, whereas I had to be up at four to, you know, speak with colleagues in Southeast Asia. And so it's not always perfect uh, and it's not always easy, but it's really important to, for me, it's been really important to come up with a, a bit of a routine of what I do outside of work to, to hold me accountable to myself and to my own sanity. <laughs>
0: Totally. I think that's something that everyone is dealing with, whether you go to the office and now it's a time and now it's a lot more stressful because you've COVID precautions and COVID, or you're working at home and you're working with a team that's you know spread over multiple time zones. I think sometimes it can be, and like you said, not having different spaces, right? You want to just be able to make this my kitchen, even if it's a small little kitchen, you, this should be the kitchen. This should be the living room. This should be where I work out. This should be where my wife and I eat dinner. But everything is just kind of melting together, I think, in COVID. And it doesn't allow one to kind of have the headspace for work and the headspace for not work. And so that's really was the origin of that question. Looking ahead, you're now in Rome and you said you're going to be there for at the headquarters, you're going to be there for four, potentially more years. If you weren't in Rome, where else would you be? And why would they move you away? What's the. Is it, you know, we want to move his expertise to another place because now in this global world, couldn't you stay in Rome? What's the thought behind maybe putting you in another office in another part of the world?
1: Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's it's a really good point. I think to follow up on your previous question, one of the things this pandemic has taught a lot of people is that a lot of the work that is done can be done from home. It can be done virtually. And I, I hope that that brings about positive change for some of you know the bigger organizations or you know or corporate entities that have quite the rigid structure. You know, WFP before the pandemic was relatively flexible. Specifically in my unit, I think that's that's one thing. Moving forward, yeah, I, I now work as a staff member, which means despite having learned over the pandemic that you know we can do work remotely, uh, we do still have colleagues that. Uh, that work in hardship duty stations, um, so there is there is still a need to to be in country, um, and it's very clear. One of the things that you know I still very much miss, but that also makes my job a bit harder, is that I'm not able to to have face to face interaction with not just colleagues, but also government officials in other countries. Moving forward, we're going to be here for two to four years, and after that, I'll you know jump into WFP's rotational system. I'll apply for. Uh, various different duty stations and and, and positions. And essentially the same as, you know, when, uh, how'd you say, when new doctors choose where they want to work, they kind of have a pairing system. WFP, the same thing, they'll look at what, you know, what job profile you're coming from, where you've applied, what the needs are, and they'll essentially match you based on your six choices of where you've applied. I think at some point in time, we'd love to, End up in in East Africa, be it Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, um, even you know farther towards the south, Malawi, Tanzania. That's where we'd like to, at some point in time, on one of the next tours that we have to take, uh, end up. Uh, but ultimately, it will depend on you know where the organization needs my specific profile and expertise most. So uh, it could be that, but it also could be a hardship duty station like you know, a a Syria or Yemen or DRC.
0: Well, thank you for joining and sharing a little bit about the work you're doing with World Food Program. It's Nobel Prize worthy work. And I'm sure our paths will cross over the next couple of years as you're moving around and I'm moving around, ideally post pandemic.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Javi. It's been, it's really been a pleasure and, you know, congratulations on the podcast and, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I, I listened with with great uh, enjoyment to to some of the previous podcasts. And I really love what you've you've come up with.
0: Well, thanks. Your episode is gonna be a global perspective that I think we all need to hear. So thanks. Thanks, Javi. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you'd like more information about the World Food Program, be sure to check out their website at www.wfp.org. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wi-Fi and Water Podcast. And if you're listening to this on your cell phone, please subscribe and leave a review. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.